I uh, sure hope you're doing well. Uh, a lot's happened in our world this particular week, and uh, so as we jump into the message this morning, um, it's important that the body of Christ pause and pray and acknowledge uh, God's mercy and ask for God's mercy and all that's happening in our world. So I want to invite you folks, those at the campus, those in the chapel, let's all pause and have a word of prayer together. Uh, Lord, um, it's been a tough week, uh, as you know. You're fully aware of everything that's gone on in our country and around our world over the past uh, seven days, and particularly we think of the incredible tragedy at Las Vegas. And Lord, um, it's, it's so sad, and all of us are looking for causes and looking for ways that we can prevent uh, evil and such as a society. Um, but Lord, as believers, as, as Christian people, we, we have to acknowledge that they're, the only prevention for all of this is a changed heart. And Lord, you're what the world needs, and, um, and our role as a church is to share that with this world, and we want to shine that light ever so bright amidst all the murky waters of people with different agendas, um, people trying to get elected, people that are afraid, people that are feeling insecure about our culture and society. We want to shine a light that we have an answer, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he changes hearts, and he changes lives, and the evidence is he's changed me. And Lord, that's what the world needs, and that's what we all need. And so, Father, we ask that you continue to have mercy on this incredible country, because you have continued to have mercy around this incredible world, and that you would draw all people to yourself, whatever, that, whatever ways you should choose, whatever um, way that your Holy Spirit would use, you draw people to yourselves and continue to allow alive to be a shining light in the communities that we're a part. I pray for the next few moments as we go into the scripture that you would hide me in your cross. This is a day we need to hear from you. And so come, Lord, uh, have your way. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, um, here's, here's the question I kind of have today as uh, we um, kind of wind this series up. And the question is really simple. And uh, you, should, you should contemplate, I think. And it's this. Can, can one person really make a difference? <laughs> Can one person really make a difference? I mean, it's kind of defeating because the world is an incredibly big place and most of us are pretty small and we have relatively small kind of circles of influence. But, but isn't there something in you and there's something in me? Isn't there a piece of us, a spirit of every human being that your life ought to count for something? Isn't there something in you that says, you know, I'm not just here to suck up 70, 80 plus years of, of air and then die, but there ought to be, there ought to, this ought to count, this ought to make a difference uh, and, and somehow in our world. And so as a result of the tension that's in us, that we're relatively small and yet we have this conscious or subconscious level that deals with the question, can I really make a difference? There's this tension that builds in us. So, so let's, let's think about this tension just for a moment and how that plays out in everyday lives. Because whether you acknowledge it or not, what you are investing your life in now is actually a result of that tension. So some of us in the room, some of us watching have, have chosen that we're going we're gonna to invest in family. It's the area where we are going to make the biggest difference. We're going to have the best kids. They're never going to do anything wrong, and they're going to take care of us when we get old. You know, we're going to have incredible, incredible kids. And so that's the investment we've made. It's all about our families. That's the top of the agenda. We want to provide for our families, like maybe for something we didn't have when we were growing up, or we want to invest fully in the children. We want to build a marriage that everybody looks at and says, that's the kind of marriage I want. We want to build a home that will last. For some of us, that tension between feeling small and yet feeling like we're to make a difference 
has resulted in us investing in families. For others, our impact in the world has been focused more on finances. We wouldn't say it this way. Maybe most of us, some of us might. We want to climb the ladder. <laughs> we, want to, we want to have bigger homes. We want to have nicer cars. We want to have the corner office, whatever. We want to retire well. Many of us are motivated by that tension. When we retire, are we going to have enough? Is our family going to have enough? You know, we don't, you don't, want, to, we don't want to kind of end up having, be a, we want to be out of debt. We don't want to carry all this into, into, we want to live comfortably. We want to live, we actually want to live more than comfortably. That's this tension in us. We want to provide for our families what we didn't, didn't have. Others of us in the room have this tension between feeling like we're supposed to make a difference, but feeling really small. And so what we tend to do is we tend to get on causes, and we'll identify a certain cause that we'll just hammer. And if nobody will listen to us, we'll put it on Facebook until people unfriend us. That happens, I'm just telling you. And so we'll have this incredible cause. Like, man, I want to you know, give clean water to people. I want to stop world hunger. I want to improve foster care. I want to save the environment. I want to adopt a pet. All this type stuff. There is, this is where the, we desire to make a difference. See, we all have this tension. You have it. I have it. Maybe I haven't listed yours, but everybody has a tension that they're trying to, trying to figure out what to do. We're trying to steward this tension between feeling very small and yet feeling we're supposed to make a difference. Now, to be honest with you, I can see a little bit of myself in the three, three examples I gave you. I want to raise great kids who are prepared to change the world. I really do. I want to raise kids that will prepare to lead people and to love well. And so Lisa and I work really hard on our family. Some days we do well, some days we don't do so well. I want a marriage that's going to last. I really do. I want a marriage that other people will look at and say, man, I wish I had something like they have. Of course I want finances to go well. I'd be lying to you if I told you anything different. I'm a much better person when I know that we can pay the bills and have a little money in the bank. I don't, I don't really want to be a financial burden to my children. Okay, that part's not true. I don't, I don't care if I do that at all. I really think they owe me, to be honest with you. I mean, I think there's some payback coming my way. But I do want to retire well. I really do. And not have to worry about money. Or so, so we do with, with, do with our money what matters, what matters most important to us. And, and causes, again, I, leaving the world a better place, I'd be, I'd be lying to you if I told you I don't get excited about some of the causes that are out there. It's a high priority for me. So, so I have some of all these in, in me. And I'm sure there are other arenas for you, you know, maybe where you want to make a difference. But here's the astounding, mind-blowing truth that I've been gnawing on throughout this series. You ready? It's not that you have a cause that I have a cause. It's not that. That's nothing new. You weren't amazed by that. But the astounding, mind-blowing truth that's upsetting my apple cart these days is this one. One person can actually make a difference. Get this. To God. You can actually make a difference to the divine creator, maker of the world. You can do that. One person can actually make a difference. Doesn't that sort of catch you off guard? Because you think, well, I'm little measly pitiful me, and I feel like I'm supposed to make a difference, but God's the complete opposite of me. Whatever this is, God's this something other, and he certainly couldn't use me on his team. I'm like on the sixth bench row, you know. I'm not even close to where he could use me. This, This sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, doesn't it? If you're not familiar with this term, oxymoron, it's when you take really these two contrasting ideas and you form a new one. So, so I'll give you some examples. Uh, jumbo shrimp. You see what, I, see what I just did there? You got these two contrasting ideas and make a new one. You guys should be amazed by this. I'm really blowing your minds. I know. This is brilliant. I know. Stay with me. So I'll give you some more just so you get, get nicer. Pretty ugly. 
See, two contrasting ideas. Open secret. How about this one? Postal service. Do you see what I'm saying? There's like two completely different you know, ideas that kind of uh, exact estimate, you know, that kind of thing. Unbiased opinion. Here's one. Airline food. You know, those are two completely contrasting ideas. Government organization. <laughs> Gamecock winner. Okay, that one, that last one isn't true. I just, I just threw it out just to make you grumpy. Tight slacks. You know what I'm saying? There's all kinds of oxymoron. Well, this sort of strikes as an oxymoron to me. This idea of making a difference to God sounds like an oxymoron. Creation making a difference to creator. That doesn't sound right. The finite making a difference to the infinite doesn't sound right. The weak, the the dying, (laughs) not to depress us, but the decaying, the falling apart, making a difference to omnipotent. It just sounds like something that shouldn't be. And the truth be told, many of us in the room actually don't believe we can make a difference. Even those of us who are Christians don't believe God relies on us. There's these two incongruous ideas coming together to make another idea. Me making a difference to God. Tom in his weakened, small-circled state. Making a difference to the one who spun the world in place with just his words. And yet, just so you know, I'm not totally off a deep end here. The scripture seems to indicate we actually do make a difference to God. Don't miss what I said. Not for God. To God. You and I and how we engage actually make a difference to God. And I'll show you some examples. God used to talk to his people back in the day through specific men and women that were called prophets or prophetesses, however you say it. And the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah has a conversation with God where Jeremiah receives these instructions. Check this out. Run to and fro. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Are you with me? Run to and fro. I just love that that's in the Bible. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and take note. Search its squares and see if you can find one person who acts justly and seeks truth. Why? So that I may pardon Jerusalem. Now let me just explain this. You can go look for it yourself. But God says, Jeremiah, if you will run around and if you can find, find one righteous person in the entire city of Jerusalem, I'm not going to look. You go look. You go see if you can find one person in the entire city of Jerusalem. If you can find them, get this. If you find them, I will forgive the entire city. (laughs) Jeremiah doesn't find one. And as you know, the city of Jerusalem ends up being destroyed. But did you see it? Look at it. Jeremiah was charged with just finding one. And if he did, it appears that he will be making a difference to God. If he finds just one. I'll show you another example in the Old Testament. There's a book called Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a strange book. It's a strange book to read and it's a strange book to figure out. It's kind of tough to understand, just to be honest with you. But Ezekiel 22, I think, is one of the most disturbing chapters in the entire book. 
And it describes the political leaders as wolves kind of devouring their own people. And okay, that part we all understand. But, you know, these wolves kind of devouring their own people. But then he turns on the religious leaders and he says, they're a mess as well. Because the religious leaders, prophets of God, say they actually have a word from God, but the word isn't true. And they're actually using it for their own gain. It's a word with an agenda. But there's also a reference in Ezekiel 22 of of what I'm talking to you about today. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. God speaking again. And I sought for anyone among them who would repair the wall, the walls of Jerusalem, and stand in the breach before me on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. Now don't don't miss this because what it's saying is this. God desires... You see God's desire in this? God actually desires to save the city. That's what he wants to see happen. He desires to save Jerusalem. He desires to save a place that is so filled with sin that all he wants is just one spark, just one piece of hope. Just one tiny light. And so he says, if I can find just one redemptive person, then these circumstances will change. But he doesn't. And the city falls. You really think it's possible for me and you to actually make a difference to God, all-powerful God, looking to me and to you. Do you think that's possible? And I would suggest it is. Do you know why? Because God often looks for one person to change the circumstances he is facing because he desires to act out of redemption all the time. God often looks for one person to stand in the gap to sacrifice, to surrender. One person who will live counterculturally. One person who will stand in the face of the onslaught of junk. Why? Because God's default is to act out of redemption. And that's how he always desires to act. Out of redemption. And that's my point. God has placed in our hands, not, not Tom's hands, but each of our hands, all of us who are observing, all of us in the chapel, all of us at Pleasant View, youth, senior adult, midlife, wherever we are, broken, torn up, drug in the mud, me too kind of people like us. He's placed in our hands a will. Everybody in the room, everybody watching, a will, a power to resist God, and he will never strip that away from you. But that power, if applied in another direction, can actually impact God's circumstance. Isaiah 50, verse 2. Why was no one there when I came? God speaking again. Why did no one answer when I called? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Don't I have any power to deliver? 
See, this is mind-blowing theology to me. Because what God is saying is this. There's nothing wrong with my power, church. Don't read the headlines as if somehow I've been taken off the throne. I'm not losing strength in the face of evil, church. Nobody has me tied up. I am fully able to save your marriage, to save your family, to save your community, and yes, by me, to save your country. But my power is being limited by you. You would rather be sinful than save your city. Doesn't that just chomp you? That just burns me up. What if that's true? What if that's true? What if when we observe the headlines, the hermeneutic that we should be using to interpret, isn't, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Well, what if, the, what if the hermeneutic we're supposed to look at is, Lord, use me. Send me on a search and, search and rescue mission. Send me on that. In Isaiah 59, God will not stand by. You'll see it. He, doesn't, he will not stand idly by while the innocent are tortured and killed. You ever desire to see God connect some of the wrongs or correct some of the wrongs of our culture, of our world? Man, do I, man, if this week, if Christians haven't prayed for God to correct, then something's wrong with Christians. Look at this, Isaiah 59, verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. You just enter in your headline there, whatever one you want. He saw that here was no one, there was no one who was appalled. Not like, oh, oh uh, no, no impact, whatever that word. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm, God's own arm brought him victory and his righteousness upheld him. The implication is this. God is going to withhold his justice on Israel if he can just find one person, anyone who will stand for purity in the face of corruption. And all this has formed this question for me. In fact, it's what I've been thinking about and praying about this week. I wonder if God's still looking around to see if anybody will take a stand for him and his purposes in our culture. I wonder if that's actually happening on our watch. And what if it is? Have you ever heard the term intercede? Feedback. This would be yes or you know, yay or nay. Have you ever heard that term before? Yeah, so intercede. The word actually comes from the Hebrew word uh, paga or paga. Intercede is, means to cause, to meet. Did you know that? So we've made it into something totally different. I actually think we've kind of... Kind of Letting our, let ourselves off the hook with what this word means. Because what intercede actually means is to cause to meet. So what that means is a, a, an intercessor is essentially a person who causes two others to meet. That's what the, her word actually means. A person who causes two others to meet. And the application of all this is kind of clear to me. Because on one hand, we have a world, we have a country, we have 96 and 24,000 if you agree with me, stuck in its junk and its sin and its need. 
And we can see it all over the place, can't we? It's everywhere. We see it in the school systems. We see it on the highways. We see it on the televisions. We see it at the grocery store. We see it everywhere. People stuck in their need. That's what we have on one hand. But then on the other hand, we have God who is within himself everything that is necessary to redeem the country and to redeem the world. Everything you saw that upset your heart and upset your mind this week, God can redeem it. Everything. So God is looking for somebody who can bring the Redeemer God in the sinful world together. I wonder how he's going to do that. Again in Isaiah, this passage is speaking of the coming Messiah of Jesus Christ. He says, and yet the Messiah bore the sin of many and made intercession for Tom, for you people, for all the good folks that are alive. He caused two to meet. So when God looked around the planet and he couldn't find a person to make things right, he said, I'll become that person. When he couldn't find an intercessor for his people, when he had people looking through the city and couldn't find one, he began his journey through the manger and to the cross. Dennis Kinlaw says this, salvation never takes place in heaven. Salvation can only take place where the problem is. You know where the problem is? It's where I am. And respectfully, you too. God had to become one of us and take into himself our sin and our evil in order that we might be redeemed. So in the broken bleeding body of our Lord himself, God's redemptive power and our iniquity met. And then in Tom's theology, God's power kicked iniquity's butt. And he redeemed. He redeemed. He redeemed me. That makes me happy. Friends, let me tell something that I'll tell you something that I think the Western church needs to sit up and take notice. Intercession is not done with our mouths. I think we're letting ourselves off the hook. True intercession takes place when one heart is more concerned about another heart than it is about itself. When one community is more concerned about 96,000, 24,000 than we are about ourselves. When one community says the idea of what church can do for me is not even part of my vernacular. Because after what God has done for me, I want to do for God. The biblical idea and pattern for intercession, the only thing that can stop the judgment of God and give the world a chance is when a person, a group a people reaches the point where he or she cares more about somebody else than about him or herself. So much so that will lead us to a point of sacrifice. Giving up something we love for something we love even more. And this is as best as I can describe what many of us have been wrestling with over the past couple of weeks as we've been walking through this series. 
and I use the word wrestling intentionally because it's true. Some of us have got to the point where the whole thing's obnoxious. Didn't even want to come to church today because we're wrestling. Some of us have got to the point where we said, let's just put something down on paper because, frankly, I'm tired of wrestling. Some of us, it hasn't been about wrestling with God. It's been about wrestling with a spouse or a friend trying to get to the right place. The only hope of my ever becoming useful to God is for that self-interest within me to be put to death. Did you hear what I just said? Because I'd like to say it again if you allow me to directly to you. Friends, the only hope of you ever becoming useful to God in the whole church vision thing that we're experiencing is for that self-interest within you to be put to death. The key to each person's salvation lies in someone else, and you can be sure the key to someone else's salvation lies within you. Not me. Don't you shove that off on me. But on you. We carry this burden together. And the key to countless salvations, listen to me, for generations to come in our surrounding areas lies in the hearts of people in this room and listening to the sound of my voice. It just does. This is the way God works. And the only hope for that person is for me and for you to allow Christ's burden to become our own. And you know what? I don't want Christ's burden. I don't want it. Because it's a whole lot easier for me to live without it. I can do what I want. Fair? I can live how I want. It's a lot easier to do life without God as long as everything's going well. But man, when life hits the fan, I all of a sudden realize that I'm not enough. Is that fair? And I need God. Allow me just to share one more with you, one more story. Do you remember the story of Moses being top of the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments? Do you remember that? Maybe you saw the movie, I don't know. And while it was going on, Aaron's under pressure back in the camp to build an idol, a fake god. Do you remember this? And so uh, Aaron made this golden calf, and the people of God became the people of the calf. <laughs> and they worshipped the calf, which was a very moving experience. Okay, just because you were grumpy. God, God, God wasn't pleased with this at all. And so this is what happens. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked, that means stubborn, how ornery, contrary, how southern they are. I mean, that, that's what that means. Now let me alone. This is God speaking. Now leave me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I'll make a great nation. Pause. Because what Moses just heard from God is this. I'm going to wipe all those people off the planet. It's going to be great. But you I'm going to take care of. Did you see it? It's right there. And in my self-interest bent, that sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? You know, I don't even think I like most of those people. So God says, I'm going to open a can. Take them all off. But you, me and you, we're going the whole way, buddy. We're going to the end zone, me and you. 
God is saying, Moses, just step aside. I'm getting ready to open a can on these rebellious, stubborn, sin-filled people. Now keep in mind, these people haven't been kind to Moses this whole day either. (laughs) And so Moses' people are in danger, and Moses feels it. So Moses, listen, steps up to God. He steps up to God. And he intercedes on their behalf. He causes two people to meet. In essence, he says, hey, God, remember how far you've brought us. We were in slavery. You pulled us out. You remember that whole plague thing? That was amazing. They're going to talk about that for years. And then you brought across the Red Sea when the whole chariots were coming. We thought we were toast. You got us across. Do you remember that? We were hungry. You brought this stuff, you know, manna from the sky. That was cool. Then you brought fried chicken later. That was also very cool. It's in the Bible. Read it. In essence, he said, Lord, you brought us for, don't give up on us now, man. This is what Moses is saying. Don't give up on us now. And then Moses stood between the almighty, holy God and the rebellious, stubborn people. Their sin, look at this, became his problem. And look what happened as a result of Moses' intercession. The Lord changed his mind. (laughs) The Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Intercession means to cause to meet. Sacrifice is to give up something I love for something I love even more. And in those two ideas is the Hope Grows Here campaign. Our church is aggressively, listen, aggressively interceding on behalf of our communities. And we desire to be the cause for our family, friends, neighbors, and people we don't even know to meet Jesus Christ. We want to be that cause. Unapologetically, this is who we are. And this campaign is specifically related to the 10,000 children we are interceding on behalf of in this very, very moment.